You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Justin Hibbard. Today we we turn our attention to Romans chapter 11. And um, this is sort of the conclusion of this, this section of Romans that deals with the Jewish people. And last week we took a look at Romans chapter 10. I said, you know, Paul is building up this this argument, this basis for understanding um, this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles that work together and live together in the community in, in Rome there, and some of the conflict that was happening from the cultural and uh, the cultural differences and the, the the spiritual experiences that both of them had. And he gets to Romans chapter 10, verse 12, and it's sort of his thesis statement. He says, For it, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, the same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses those who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, we talked about this extensively last week. Paul is not saying that being a Jew doesn't matter. How do I know that? Because he tells us in Romans 9, he tells us, I think, in Romans chapter 2, he said, what advantage there is there being a Jew? Everything, they have this and that and so forth. He's not saying that our cultural distinctions don't matter. He's saying that when it comes to what he's talking about in in the book of Romans is that all of us are condemned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and all of us are saved by grace through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So in that regard, there is no difference. We're on the same playing field here, Jew and Gentile. There's no reason to judge. And that we're going to get in that in Romans chapter 11. Just, uh, just kind of a brief note as we look at Romans 11. This is a very, 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 very complex chapter. And I've been spending weeks just kind of like, what is Paul saying here? What, what's going on? And a couple of notes about studying the book of Romans that I found helpful for me. Number one, don't just read a chapter or a verse, or a small passage of the book of Romans. Interpret Romans with Romans. Because Paul talks about a lot of different concepts all throughout the book of Romans. And we'll see here in chapter 11 how he comes back to a lot of those concepts. So if we just look at this verse here, that's like, well, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We think, oh, okay, there's, Paul's saying that it doesn't really matter if you're Jew or Gentile. But that's not what he's saying. It's, it's more complex than that. And, and we get a bigger picture of what he's saying when we realize the, the issue of grace and salvation and con- condemnation that he weaves throughout the book of Romans. The second thing was the, oh yeah, there, here's the second thing. The second thing, <laughs> at a Rick Perry moment. The second thing is that, um, the second thing that he says is that, that's important is that Paul talks in a rhetorical, uh, manner, right? So what he does is, uh, and this is common among the rabbis of the day, what they would do is they'd ask a question and their students would respond with a question, right? So they'd ask a question and their students would respond with a question and that would let the rabbi know that their students understand what he's talking about. So in this case, in, in the book of Romans, well, Paul doesn't have time to write a question, mail the letter, let it take for about a year to get to Rome, and then a year later have the response back and then Paul's like, what was the question again, Right? So he asks the question, and then he responds with an answer. But a lot of times, what makes what makes Paul so tricky, and a lot of times what makes Romans tricky, is that he answers the question in a different location than he asked it. It's not like, here's the question, here's the answer. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we have to do a little digging for it, and that's what we're going to do today. And if you have your Bibles, I really encourage you to, to pull them out and to take notes, to write in the margin or something. Maybe make, here's the question, here's the answer to that question. 
and um, understanding what he does. Now, I ended last week not going all the way through the book of uh, the chapter of 10, and we're going to start there today. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, we'll begin here with these questions that Paul asks. He says this in verse 14, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So he's talking about the Jews here. And he says, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So a lot of questions that Paul begins with. And he's talking about the Jewish people. And the gist of all of these questions is this. How can the Jews believe and be counted as righteous if they have not heard the gospel? Uh, maybe a, another question that we ask about the world. How can someone uh, be condemned? How can someone be condemned if they don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? How can someone believe if they don't ha- have the opportunity to hear the gospel? These, these are the big issues that Paul deals with here in chapter 10. So, so let's take a look here and find out what the question is. So the first question he asks is here in verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And he gives us the answer in verse 16 and 17. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So Paul is saying some people have rejected the message. In verses 14 and 18, he asks some more questions. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So if nobody goes to them, how are they supposed to believe? You ever have that question? Ever think about that? He quotes from Psalm 19. He says this, of course they did. He says, have they heard? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. In verse 19, he says, did Israel not understand then? And the answer is found, he begins by quoting Deuteronomy 32. He says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then in Isaiah 65, he says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I have held out my hand to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. So what's he saying? He's saying that there is some aspect of Israel's understanding being confused. But at the same time, the Lord has made himself known to them clearly and plainly. In fact, he's held out his hands to them all day long, and they have rejected him. That's the gist of what he's saying. Now, think about this. Paul is talking to the Jewish people. Rewind back to Romans chapter 1, where Paul is focusing on the Gentiles. Look what he says. In Romans chapter 1, here's what he says. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known, listen to this, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Have been clearly seen. Now, he doesn't say 
because of the word of God, because of the Torah, because of the law. He says because of nature, because of what God has created, he has revealed himself since the beginning of creation so that all of his invisible qualities may be known. And he says, he says, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Thanks. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. What, what Paul is asking is, is anyone without excuse? He begins in, in Romans chapter 1 talking about the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 10, he's talking about the Jews. And the bottom line is, he quote, and, and we look at Romans 9 where it says, God is just. And he has made himself known to both Jews and to both Gentiles so that all the world is without excuse. No one can say, I did not have an opportunity to get to know you. Now that might seem a little difficult for us to wrestle with. Because for us, we look at this world, and in our society, we have the gospel at our dispense. There are churches on every corner. There's radio stations that broadcast the gospel. There are TV stations that broadcast the gospel. We can easily find Christians in various places in our society. In other societies, that's not the case. So we wonder, well, if they don't have a society like ours, how do they hear the gospel? Well, I think sometimes we forget that God has the power to work beyond our capability, beyond our imagination. You, you hear stories of um, Muslims who have gathered for prayer, and all of a sudden, a lot of them have a vision of the Lord. We read about, uh, we looked at last week about a Gentile by the name of Cornelius who had a vision and the Lord revealed himself to him. The Lord has operated time and time again so that the, so that we're without excuse. He has revealed himself in some powerful ways. I've, uh, I've heard a story about a missionary who went to a remote location, an unreached people group and and when he got there, he presented the gospel and they responded to him by saying, we know that guy. We worship him. We know exactly who he is. We don't call him the name that you call him. We know him by some name different. But everything you've said, we understand. That's part of our religion, our worship here. God has the power to move in ways beyond our scope of imagination. But he talks about this issue of hardening the Jewish people's hearts. So Paul asked the question, beginning in Romans chapter 11, he says this, I ask then, did God reject his people? Did God reject them? By no means, he says. And listen to, listen to his response. Listen to his logic here, his argument. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. So you can't say, he's saying, you can't say that God has rejected his, his people because I am a Jew. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I was one that observed the law. If God can save me, then you can't say that he has rejected his people. And then he quotes, he goes on, he says, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I am the only one left. And they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 
who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So he talks about this remnant. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, look, if God has saved me, a Jew, then God has not rejected his chosen people. And if God has saved you, which he's talking to Jewish believers there in in the Church of Rome, and he's going to write letters to many churches uh, throughout uh, the Roman Empire, and many of them are made up of part Jewish believers and part Gentile believers. If God has saved them, then you can't say that God has rejected his people. There will always be a remnant. And the idea of the remnant remains through the book of Romans, all the way through the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 7 that we read this kind of famous passage that we often struggle with. Do not harm the land, or the sea is talking about the time of the tribulation. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And then it lists 12,000 from each tribe and talks about this. And I think a lot of Christians wrestle with this passage. We say things like, well, I think here he's talking about the, the church and, and the 12,000 from the different tribe is just sort of representative. Or you might have a Jehovah's Witness stop by the door and says, we're a part of the 144,000. Do you want to be part of the 144,000? So we struggle with this passage. But here's the thing. Look at what it says after this. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So the 144,000 pertain to the Jewish remnant. The rest, there's, there's the, the multitude that no one can count. The Jewish people here in the, coming out of the tribulation, the believers that will come out of the tribulation, they can be counted. 144,000. The rest, a tri, a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, language, and tongue. So there will always be a remnant. That is God's plan. In in verse 7, we read this. What then? What the people of Israel sought sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Remember, he says, there will be some that will, the remnant will receive it by grace. And if it's not by, if it's by works, then grace wouldn't be grace. So what he's saying, so what then? The people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. Well, what did they seek so earnestly? We, we learned about this in chapter 10. They sought the righteousness of God. How did they seek the righteousness of God? In chapter 10, Paul tells us, they sought the righteousness not by faith, but by works. They sought to obtain God's righteousness by obedience to the law. And we talked about how impossible that is. You cannot obey the law. You fall short just a little bit. You fall short 90, you do just, you do 95%. You've still fallen short. There is no way to obtain righteousness by the law. We obtain it by grace through faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So he says, so those, so what the people sought so earnestly, those who wanted the righteousness of God and they sought it by obeying the law, they did not obtain it. Then he says, the elect among them did. The elect among them, and we'll get, we'll get to that in just a second. But the others were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. 
This is a tough passage, isn't it? We're saying that, that God basically tells them they can't believe and he, and, he, and he rejects his people. We just said God doesn't reject his people. So how do we understand this passage? Well, I think sometimes when we talk about election, we talk about salvation, we talk about these tough passages, we think of the earth like this even neutral playing ground. This even neutral playing ground where we all have the opportunity to receive Jesus, hear Jesus, and respond to Jesus. And if we respond positively, we go to heaven. We go from the neutral ground to the glorious ground. And if we respond negatively, if we reject him, we go to hell. And so we think of earth kind of as that neutral playing field. And what Paul is saying is that is not the case. And throughout Romans, he makes the stake, uh, makes the case that that is a false presumption. A false premise. So how does he describe our current condition? Let me take you to a place called North Korea. It's a prison, we would say. It's made up of a, a people, it's a country, it's a nation that don't get to leave its borders. They don't have freedom. They, their news is limited. Their ideas about the world is limited by the authoritarian, authoritarian regime. To them, this is normal. They grew up in this place. They don't know what, you ever see the Truman Show with uh, Jim Carrey? He's like, this, this is normal to me. Everything seems normal about it, but everyone on the outside looks at it and says, man, what a terrible life. But to them, this is, this is life. They don't know anything different. See, when we think about it that way, we aren't sent into a cell. We're born into a cell. We're born into a prison. We don't know anything beyond the eight by eight walls around us. We can't say, well, uh, you know, this is terrible or this is that, this is that. This is all we know. This is everything. This is, this is the society I grew up in. This is the limits that I know. I don't know that there's a world outside. I don't even know what's outside. I don't even know there is an outside, right? When you think about it that way, you understand just how profound grace is. Because what Jesus does is sort of like, sort of like the president. He'll, he walks into this prison. I've given this illustration before. I want you to imagine that you're in this prison, this eight by eight cell. You don't know anything else. You don't even know there's a president. And the president comes by and he says, I have the authority to pardon you. Pardon? What's pardon? What do I need to be pardoned from? What, what do you, why are you on the outside of my cell? How, how are you on the outside of my cell, right? This is all we know. And he opens the door to our cell and he says, you're free. What's freedom? What, what, what am I free from, right? This, this, is the, this is the problem with saying that we're on the neutral ground, we have this choice and so forth. God's election is his, his grace. I mean, this is just what's so amazing about grace. And in Romans 9, he says this. So sometimes we, we look at, we look at, um, these passages about freedom and about, uh, predestination, election. We get so tripped up on them. We say, well, well, is God fair? I mean, he, he saved this person, but not that person. He condemned that person now. No, no, no. Listen to this. Listen. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. He says this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? We look at this like God has to save everybody. God has to, right? Well, well, no, 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 no. The fact that God saves one person, let alone millions or billions of people, is the utmost expression of grace and mercy that you and I could never, ever imagine inside of our dark cell. 
The fact that God opens that door, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This world is part of hell. This world that we live in, this world that we have chosen by our nature and by our choice of sin is not neutral ground. What God does is he opens the doors of our cells, of of hell itself, and reveals a grace and a mercy that's unbelievable. He says in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God's mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And if you think about it, there is nothing I have done to get God's attention. It doesn't depend on my human desire. It doesn't depend on my effort. Because remember, my effort and my human desire are limited to my 8 by 8 cell. I don't even know there's a such thing as grace. I don't know that God exists. I don't know that God, what, who God is. or what. The fact that people say that they wrestle with the concept of God even though they've never read the Bible, shows that God has written eternity in our hearts, which Ecclesiastes 3 says. God has opened the door to our cell. So what about this issue of God hardening hearts? Well, if you think about it from that standpoint, if you think about it from the premise that all of us are already condemned, not that we'll be condemned, we're already condemned. When you think about it that way, he says, therefore, in Romans 1, Following that passage about the gentle, he said, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires. The sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What, what, what's happening here? God is giving them free will. We talk about the, one of the things I often hear about God's election is like, well, it takes away, it takes away the component of free will. No, no, no. The problem isn't that we don't have free will. The problem is that we have free will. And the problem is, is that we will choose ourselves 100% of the time unless God intervenes. Thank God that He has intervened in our destructive free will, right? The fact that God opens up our eyes and the doors of our hearts to see something from his nature is amazing grace. As Philip Yancey wrote, what's so amazing about grace? That's what's so amazing about grace. We don't know that we need it. We don't know that we want it. We don't know that it exists. But God knows, and he knows, and he does something about it. In verse 11, we'll continue. So a lot of, a lot of concepts, a lot of big concepts Paul un- unravels here. He says in verse 11, he says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. He's talking about the Jews. Did they stumble so much that they've fallen beyond recovery? The answer is no. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for all the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches where their full inclusion bring. I'm not talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their redemption brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance to be but life from the dead? 
If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, another tough questions that he's asking. So he's saying, he's saying this, he's saying, um, rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So what is God doing? Is he, is he giving salvation to somebody else so that, Israel, so that the Jewish people can be jealous of God? Is that what, what he's doing here? Well, I think to understand this difficult passage, it helps to look at Luke chapter 14, a, a parable that Jesus spoke about an invitation. He said this. He said, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. The next said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just gotten married, so I can't come. So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who was, who was invited will get a taste of my banquet. We understand this. Think about it this way. If the Jewish people did not reject Jesus, if they believed, I wonder if the Gentiles would have received an opportunity to believe. I mean, it's sort of hypothetical. You really can't ask that question without thinking in non-existent thoughts. But... <sighs> But think about it this way, that, that the, the, the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Not only did they reject Jesus, they persecuted the Jewish believers. Because of that persecution, the gospel spread into the, the, the four mark, most parts of the earth. It was in Cyprus that many, in Antioch, that many people began to evangelize first the, to the Gentiles. In Caesarea, we talked about Cornelius last week, who also um, was evangelized to by Peter. And here are the Gentiles are the first to believe then. So does this mean that, that God rejects certain people so that others might come in? Does God have a quota? It's like, well, I've got, I've got, I've got a million people, and if these are going to reject me, I've still got 500,000 to go. Well, this is a parable, and it's an analogy, and sometimes those analogies break down a little bit, but you can get the point of what, Pete, what Paul, what Jesus are saying here. I think about it this way. It's kind of like, as a dad, I have, um, you know, I have three kids, and it's bound to happen. There's a 33% chance that one of them is going to be sulking one day. And so we'll say, okay, maybe it's not that high. No, maybe it is. Maybe it's higher. I don't know. And so I'll say, hey, let's do this. And it's bound to happen. One person's like, oh, I don't want to do this, Dad. What are we going to do this for? It's sulking. And so what do you say as a dad? You say, okay, that's fine. You sulk. But we're going outside and we're going to do this, right? And as they watch, they're still sulking, right? Yeah, look at me. I'm angry. Look, every time you look at me, I'm going to make a mad face. You know, that type of thing, right? And, and then finally, they realize, wait, wait a second. There's so much joy that's happening out there. And here I'm in my own prison of my own sulkiness. Is that, I don't even know if that's a word, but here I am in my own prison. 
and I'm missing out on all of this. So the envy, the, the jealousy that we're talking about here, think about it this way. Not, not the envy, jealousy like, I'm gonna steal your girlfriend and look at you, make you angry. But rather the jealousy of, look at the joy that life in Jesus brings. Wait, wait, they're, they're understanding something about the fulfillment of the law that I, I never understood. When we think about it that way from that invitation, now Jesus says, he sort of adds here, not any of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. What Paul is saying is that eventually the Jewish people will receive a taste of the banquet. In Romans 11, again in verse 17, he continues on, he, he, he talks about another analogy. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken so that I would be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So, again, apparently there were some disputes going on, some conflict among the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and Gentiles were like, you were broken off so that I could come in. God, he, he, he uh, took his way, as, he took away your invitation and gave it to me instead, right? This was some of the talk that was going on with Paul says, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. They, they didn't believe. And God included you. You can't boast. It's not that, it's not that God, did, you know, that you're better than them. And he continues in verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, the mercy and the justice of God, so to speak. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Why kindness? Because he opened your dark cell provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So even those who reject him, God is able to bring back. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And we think about that from the, the context of the, the Jewish roots of Christianity, that those who come to faith in Jesus from a Jewish background really understand the gospel. They understand Jesus' fulfillment of the law. It's very natural for them to understand that. But I think a lot of times we look at this passage, it's very tricky because we say something like, well, the church is the new Israel. The church has replaced Israel, or so to speak, because Israel was cut off and now the church has replaced them. But I want you to notice something here. What is the root? What is the, the vine? The vine is not the Jewish people. John 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not grafted in to the Jewish faith. We're grafted in to Jesus the Messiah, right? Uh, there are branches, and the branches are not grafted in the Jewish branches, so to speak, are not grafted in or, or grow in just the Jewish faith. They grow in Jesus the Messiah. A, a, a root will come from the stump of Jesse. Who is that root? 
That root is Jesus himself. He is the branch. He is the vine and we are the branches. He is the trunk. We are the branches. So what we're brought into is not a life in and of ourselves. It is a life with Jesus made up of different branches from different cultures and different backgrounds and so forth. This is what he's talking about because the, these these two groups were arguing and bickering over things and he said, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. None of you deserve this. None of you deserve to be here. It's only by God's grace. How can you say you're better than somebody else if you're here by God's grace? Kind of concluding here in Romans chapter 11, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, and it is a mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, now listen, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Well, how are they enemies as far as the gospel is concerned? Because they reject Jesus the Messiah. They reject Jesus the Messiah and they've tried to persecute the Gentile believers. They've tried to persecute the Jewish believers. But as far as election goes, as far as God's grace is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Why? Because God has elected some. He has chosen a remnant that is saved by grace. So even though they may be your enemies now, they will not be your enemies later on. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Well, what does that mean? God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Well, God has the right to destroy us all, doesn't he? He has the right to do that, but sometimes he doesn't. Most of the time he doesn't. In fact, he's very lenient and very merciful to us. And as Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much love much, right? Sometimes God allows us to wallow in our disobedience, and sometimes he intervenes in some miraculous way so that we can only say, my goodness, it's not by me. It's by you and you alone, Lord. You're the one who saved me. It's your grace, your grace alone. In Romans 9, he, he mentions this. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? If mercy is the status quo, then there is no mercy. If justice and judgment is the status quo, if we go to the judge's bench with the status quo that everyone receives what they deserve and a judge intervenes and says, wait, I'm going to hold off on this punishment, then what we've experienced is mercy. If the judge always says, wait, if the judge always exhibits mercy and leniency, then there is no such thing as mercy and leniency. It's the status quo. So when God intervenes in an amazing way of opening our eyes and ears to hear the gospel, to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and to understand the confines of our disobedience and the confines of our own mental prison, that is grace and that is mercy. The Pope uh, 
came into the news this week, and he said this. He said, if someone is gay and searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? It's kind of been interesting watching the news sort of trip all over themselves trying to spin this story. But I want you to understand what the Pope is saying here. And I think it's very beautiful, and I think it serves as an object lesson for us in looking at Romans chapter 11. What, what the Pope is saying, he isn't, he isn't making a revolutionary statement about the church and its belief towards uh, sinful activity or anything else. What he's saying is this. Who are we to stand in the way of God coming to another person? As Peter says in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, as he goes to Cornelius' house and has to explain his actions for eating with Gentiles, he says, when I saw that God did not, when he gave his spirit to both Jews and Gentiles, who was I to stand in the way? A lot of times we want to be the gatekeepers of salvation. We want to say, well, you can come in, and you can, and well, before you come in, let's have a little chit-chat and so forth. We say here at New Hope Chapel, we say the purpose of New Hope Chapel is to point people to Jesus, that they may know the love of God, live in the love of God, and share the love of God. And what, what Paul is saying, what he's doing, is he's pointing people to Jesus. He's saying this, he's saying, look, I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know this. I don't know that. He, he presents a lot of theology. But he says this. I'm, it's all about Jesus. And when you realize it's all about Jesus, you realize what a privileged position you are in, what a privileged position everyone is in, like Carling was sharing with the children's message. We can sit there and say, God, thank you for not making me like that person. But the prayer of grace is, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving a wretch like me. You know, we, Paul ends this passage in Romans, and we'll, we'll use it as benediction. Paul ends it, oh, the riches and the glory and the love of God, who has discerned his thoughts, who has known his decrees, who has counseled the Lord, who has known the mind of God. And I think sometimes we look at these passages that Paul says, like, you kind of give up. You're like, I have no idea what Paul's trying to say here. But look. Sometimes there are things that happen in heaven that are a mystery to us. And they may look very different than what happens here on earth, the way that God orchestrates things and so forth. We, we don't see all of the behind-the-scenes stuff. But all we do know is that Jesus is working behind the scenes. We can't change someone's heart. Perfection is not a prerequisite to salvation. We don't come to Jesus because we're perfect. We come to him so that we can be like him so that he can open the cells of our minds. So as you're ministering to your brothers and sisters in the community and so forth, and people struggle with some mighty things, point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can make us like him. He's the only one that can change our hearts and our minds and so forth. And in our community, as we have a diversity of backgrounds, people from different ethnicities and different uh, social classes and all sorts of different things. Point each other to Jesus. In our, in our diversities, we can, we can see the difference in, our, in ourselves and we can make comparisons. Thank you, God, for not making me like that person, right? But in Christ, in the root of the olive tree, we are one because he has done for us, each of us, he has saved us by grace through faith in him alone. Amen.
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.